sun and is absorbed, it's filtered through our atmosphere, absorbed by our plant life, and then it is consumed mostly by insects, but then by larger animals and then human beings. And as we die, or as we produce waste, um, excrement, whatever, that has a natural cycle of being decomposed and the nutrients restored again to the plants. And so it is, it's, all life is a cycle of energy being rotated through all living things, and we are connected by that. Um, science has come up with a term to kind of describe that cycle, that web, and it's biodiversity. And biodiversity exists in any environment. You can take your body as a singular environment. There is a biodiversity within your body. As you consume food, and that food is broken down, and that energy from that food is then distributed out to your entire body, and you've got all of these bacteria and microorganisms in your gut that help do that and keep you healthy and restore, um, or restore your energy levels and, and give you that energy, and then waste is produced from you, and, and you excrete that waste. And uh, at one point in time, when human beings were excreting that waste onto the actual ground, that was decomposed, and, and that energy was then restored to plants. Um, or you could take the, the San Ynez Valley as an environment. Biodiversity exists right here within this valley. Every living creature has a part to play that affects everyone else. Um, talking about pollution, climate change, the things that are um, wreaking havoc on our planet could be understood as that cycle of energy being disrupted. And really to understand that cycle of energy is that the natural system of all consumers producing waste, it's not sustainable any longer. Human beings are producing too much energy and thereby producing too much waste. And the planet cannot sustainably break that waste down and return it to the earth and keep that cycle going. Um, at one point in time, our technology, um, it, it, we, were, we were just another mammal amongst thousands of other mammals, eating, producing waste, dying, becoming waste, decomposing, and that cycle was just undisturbed. And then what happened scientifically was that before human beings could understand that cycle, they developed technology to up the resources. And that was a good thing because that initially helped the masses. That helped, that helped the regular folks, whereas uh, powerful people were already being taken care of. And so it was a good thing in its onset. Technology was helping more people uh, live longer, still in a sustainable way. Um, but that technology kept growing and kept evolving before human beings were again able to scientifically understand the cycle. And in that process, because the average human being no longer needed to till their own soil or understand the seasons in which they were living in, they grew separate from the creative world around them. The relationship was severed for a lot of people, and that relationship can 
understand this cycle, this sustainable way of living that this, this planet or God had created that uses every little part when that research finally came out to say, hey, this is what we're doing to the planet. We need to think of another way to do stuff. The relationship was already so severed that people couldn't conceptualize how to come back to it. Now, a good example is um, the, the book that we've been doing for our book group, and I've used it. It's the genesis for our story time. I forgot our storytelling. That's okay. We're late. Um, <laughs> but the genesis for our storytelling component um, was this book, let me tell you, no, um, Between the Listening and the Telling by Mark Iaconelli. He tells a story where he was invited by uh, climate scientists to come in and help them um, communicate to everyday people the problem going on with the climate. And so they sat down and the climate scientists started talking about all of the data, the research, all of the, you know, the, the, the problem that's going on and what is the science telling us. And it was all figures and charts and graphs and all of this data. And he told them, no one's ever going to be swayed by that data. They need to be swayed by your storytelling. And so what he helped them develop was the stories that each of them had as to why they got into the work in the first place. And so one woman talked about her story of living on the coast and seeing these, um, uh, I forget what the bird is called, it's a coastal bird, they lay their eggs up on cliff sides, um, and she just, she had this intimate relationship with them where she, it, it was just beautiful and it, it filled her. And, um, you know, it gave her a passion to study life and she went through college studying that. This was before she decided she wanted to, to work within climate science um, until one day she realized that um, the migratory group in her hometown had been wiped out. They were gone. And she understood the biodiversity behind it, that it had to do with, you know, this other species and this other, and all of these things that were connected, but it essentially had wiped them out. And she said that she just, when she found it out, she just sat at her desk and Mark said, that's the story. So you, you need to present this information, but that's the story that's going to help people really understand it because it brings them back to that relationship with the creative world around us. So here we are at this time where we know, we know that the, the climate temperatures are going up, we know that our planet is in trouble, we know that human beings are contributing to so many elements of this, but for the most part, people aren't doing what's needed um, because that relationship is no longer there. So I've got this on your handout, and this is something that's kind of stood out to me as, I, as I've been creating this. It's the second bullet point. Our faith, and notice the, it's, it doesn't compel us, it doesn't ask us, it doesn't tell us to consider. Our faith obligates us to understand the basic elements of ecological science. Now what I mean by that is our faith, we're going to call ourselves Christians or followers of Jesus, we have an obligation, a mandate, to understand the basic elements of ecological science because it helps us understand the relationship we have in this planet so that we can help return it to a sustainable it's not like you get to say, well, I'm, I want to be part of the worship team, or 
I want to be a part of the Orthodox, or I want to be a part of um, social justice stuff. Our faith obligates us to understand just the basic elements of ecological science so that we can be stewards of this planet. Now, one way to consider that is to just consider the biodiversity. That's kind of the topic for the, the first half of this, that word, biodiversity. And biodiversity means that we're all diverse species, but we live in an environment where we all affect each other, right? <coughs> and um, one of the things that Francis would do back in his time is he would be traveling, this is the time of wagons, and he would notice earthworms on, on the pathway where wagons and people would be walking. And no matter how many there were, no matter how long it took, he would delicately pick up each earthworm and move it off of the path. Um, and, and, and this is this is in a time where all he knew about earthworms was that they were being crushed by feet and by wagons. <laughs> but science is caught up to what earthworms do, right? I don't remember how many of you remember dissecting an earthworm and like kept their biology or whatever. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, worms have ten hearts, you cut them in half and they'll just keep living. Um, but the biggest thing about the earthworm is it's our greatest decomposer. It's our greatest tiller of the soil. Soil is our greatest little thing that makes sure our, our soil is still nutritious. This little tiny earthworm. And every time it rains, they all come out of everywhere, right? They were also introduced to the North America. They're kind of they were like an invasive species of sorts. Would you say that slower? They're also what? They were introduced to North America oh, okay. by like Europeans coming in. Oh, okay. That they didn't exist in North America before. Did that. you say they're invasive? Uh, like that? I mean, that they play. They take. They do a role, but like decomposing was happening without them gotcha. before they showed okay. up. And so like they become. So I don't need to change this and say, all right, everybody, go out and kill everybody. <laughs> no, <see>. no, <laughs> just go back to Europe. Like when they first came over, they kind of took over, but then like everything is kind of adjusted to them being here. So that there are something that's called a naturalized species. Okay. Oh. That's 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 yeah. Um, a couple decades ago in Yellowstone, um, uh, people just got tired of seeing um, wolves killing elk. Right. They just thought of wolves as these predatory animals that were doing this mean thing. And so, um, I remember if it was, it was probably the state, not the federal government, but they issued this thing to go out for all the trappers and hunt. Go out and kill wolves. Hunt them down, shoot them, skin them, sell them for fur, whatever you do, but just get rid of the wolves. And they did. They didn't make that the wolves extinct because those species existed in other parts, but just in Yellowstone, get rid of the wolves. And people did. And then they started to notice that the Aston population started decreasing, and they didn't know why. And they were freaking out, seeing all of these aspens decreasing. So they went out and started studying and researching this and realized that the elk living in Yellowstone had strayed away from their normal migratory patterns. And they started grazing on all of these aspens, aspens that they would only graze upon seasonally. They were doing it all year long, and they were doing it in regions of Yellowstone that they didn't normally do it in. And scientists at first were kind of stumped. What does this mean? And they realized that the wolves, also hunted seasonally, had not only been controlling the elk population, but controlling their migratory patterns. Elks migrated away from the wolves as best as they could, and they migrated seasonally to try to avoid wolves throughout the year. And so the researchers went to the state and said, hey, this is a problem, this is the solution. And so the state reintroduced this species of wolves back 
the Yellowstone, and as they increased population, they went back into their normal hunting patterns, uh, hunting elk, and, and you imagine this like imbalance was suddenly balanced. That's that biodiversity. That's just, you know, imagining like um, a cycle and just plucking one thing out of it and it just starts to fall apart and then sticking it right back in and seeing it right itself. They're also seeing changes in uh, the rivers uh, throughout Yellowstone too, of oh, yeah. having the trees come back and the deer aren't eating everything. But where I grew up in Colorado, uh, there was a bounty for coyotes. And you could go out and however many coyote tails you brought in, you got 10 bucks, something like that. But uh, as the coyote population went down, the rodent population exploded. And humans started getting very sick from the uh, rodent droppings in their homes and contracting all of and it was, so we made ourselves very ill by getting rid of the coyotes yeah. that didn't control the rodents. And, and the crazy thing is the average person doesn't have that knowledge. We have, we have enough <coughs> scientists who have that knowledge and try to disseminate that knowledge, but it doesn't make it to us. And, and then there's thousands of examples of biodiversity being disrupted that we can talk about. So, I mean, what about like the rates of species where, you know, like in Florida, there's a bounty on pythons.
There's also the story, I mean, like it was a documentary that I saw when I was a kid about cane toads, but it, it's an example of, it happens in a few other places where humans are like, oh, here's this thing, but we don't need to kill it with chemicals. We'll bring in a predator to eat it, and then it doesn't, and then the predator takes over and yeah. eats the, uh, the wrong things, and then they can't get rid of it. So um, biodiversity is, is this very complex cycle that's happening all over our planet, all, all of these environments that get disrupted and we can see it. And it's not just a matter of saying, hey, stop doing that. Um, it's also a matter of understanding kind of the economic impacts that are going on as well. I think one of the, one of the organizations I saw where overfishing was happening when they started doing it, and it was really cool, was they, they took the folks that were fishing, people that were indigenous to that area, and, and helped them with money and, and infrastructure to develop their own tourism businesses. So people would come over to these areas, and instead of having a tourism business, going out in the sea and seeing stuff being run by someone who was either doing it through like an, a, a massive international company, like a hotel or a resort or something, they helped people start their own businesses where they were running this. And, and not only were they generating from a different source of income, they were making more money than they were previously. Um, and so there's this kind of economic cycle too that, uh, that happens in, in those kinds of uh, situations and circumstances. So biodiversity is this just multi-layered complex thing. Um, and again, we can understand this intellectually has to be that direct acquaintance with it. And every single one of us in this room now has that direct acquaintance. I call it the humility of the tiniest thing. Here we are, human beings, we can, we can alter the planet, and then through our own um, market systems of animals, which we have been warned against, a virus is transmitted from an animal to a human being. <coughs> still affecting us today. This little tiny thing that none of us could see with the naked eye went through our entire planet and shut it down. It halted everything. We could, we could be as crazy and as controlling as we want as human beings, but at the end of the day, there are these tiny little things that if they want, and if given the route, can remind us where we stand on this planet. The humility of the tiniest thing. And no matter what your, what your ideology is or your faith is, that's always going to exist. This need to understand it, because whether we choose to look at it or not, it can still do it at any point in time. Yeah, yes. So another terrifying thing to consider, uh, as much as CO2 buildup is bad, um, if you look at the nitrogen cycle. Oh, yeah and nitrates in water and, and the fact that we create ammonia fertilizer from um, petrochemicals. If you look at it, all of our water systems are in, in jeopardy right now because of it. So what you need to do is take your lawn out because all of the people that are like um, fertilizing their lawns and putting spray on their lawns, I mean, it's just like if everyone in this valley took their 50 square feet of lawn out, the, the difference, you know, and put in a, di a diverse carpet yeah. of native plants and not stuff you get at Home Depot. Yeah. But the, the nitrogen cycle, if you read up on that, it's oh, terrifying. Yeah. Um, I, 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 we, I touched on it a little bit last week, but I didn't want to fully go into it and 
scare the shit out of us. <laughs> story to tell around oh, that. Good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> story. Uh, when I was trekking in Nepal in 1982, I went uh, from western Nepal, from Pokhara. I was going to go up around the Annapurna Sanctuary. You go between Annapurna and Dwalagiri, and then you go up around, but there had been too much snow, so I wasn't going to make it. But anyway, on that journey, I began, you know, seeing what was going on. My, my guide was a man uh, from Tibet, a refugee, who was also very up on biodiversity and what was going on. And what you saw was two things that I noticed, or he talked about, chainsaws and rifles. <laughs> and what was going on was, uh, all of a sudden, the people who are living you know, near a poverty level on the, in, in that area have two tools that are just incredibly powerful. They can cut down the biggest tree and cut it up in a, like that. Uh, also, they can, without any effort at all, kill uh, large prey at a great distance. And so there were two things going on. They were essentially eliminating some of the uh, animals, um, deer, I guess, and, and even smaller animals. Also, they were wrecking their watershed. But, and, you know, so how do you tell a person who's nearly starving, who's children are dying at the rate of one per three, that no, you can't use a rifle or a chainsaw. That isn't gonna fly. But at the same time, uh, there was this increasing um, trade of people like myself going there to see it. And so you had hostels uh, along the way, restaurants. One of the restaurants was beginning to serve Italian food taught They've been taught how to make it by a, another trucker from LA who, or San Francisco who had a restaurant. And so you saw both of these things going on where there's a new sort of economic path for these folks, but also um, the technology that's coming to them is not helping yeah. in the longer term. And so going forward, um, it changed a lot. And they did do some regulation. And actually, the mortality rate around, around children dropped from about 20, 25% to about four over the interim from then to now. Which is it's kind of what I was going to, our, our faith obligates us to understand the basic elements of ecological science. Part of that ecological science is the, the economic elements to it as well. You can't just tell people stop doing that. You have to understand if there's an economic impact to telling them to stop doing that. Um, how many of you bought Tom's shoes at any point in your life? Tom's shoes. Tom's shoes. Yeah. Right? That became so popular because the, the thing was, you buy a pair of shoes and I will give another pair of shoes to somebody in Africa. Um, you know what Tom's shoes did? It ruined the shoe business in Africa. 
people who were making their income off of making and selling shoes at a low level was gone. So many people bought Toms, and he, he did distribute them, but he completely destroyed the shoe industry in Africa, which was an industry feeding low-income people. Um, and so there was that, that obligation of understanding bigger economic impacts of, I'm just going to help this, but really, what is entailed in, in that help? Yeah, thank you. Thank you what so about the cultural impact of all this? I worked in Cactobic, Alaska, where each Eskimo village is allowed to take one whale, and they do. Nothing's wasted. Every part of that whale is used. Yeah. But that's the, that's their coal. Uh-huh. Didn't try the, the uh, whale blubber ice cream, but. <laughs> and on a local level, why don't why aren't we eating what's in season? Right. I see what we call in my airline cargo. And one day out of Amsterdam, it was like forty thousand pounds of red peppers. Right. Why are we bringing red peppers here? I'll blow your mind even more, Raymond. Is uh, this organization we kind of partnered with, um, uh, they have the statistics for our region. We import 96% of the food we consume in this county. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And we export 99% of the food we produce. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I look at the sticker where your food comes from. Yeah. Walk away from somewhere else. Yeah. It's grown right here. Uh-huh. 96%. And we throw, what, 30% of it away? 40. 40. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot to it, right? And again, intellectually, we can hear statistics and understand this, um, but then how do you connect with it? And, and as I said last week, I think spirituality has an element. That's why we started with this meditation. One thing I want to touch on to kind of give us poise for that is understanding how theology shifted from the medieval uh, theology through our time today to to kind of reshape how we look at our planet. So. I've only given you some titles here, but I want to go through this stuff really quick. So we've got five minutes until the beer brings the kids running in here. Um, so theologically, what happened, uh, you know, um, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, did end up having a son named James, who was a flaming homosexual, by the way, and absolutely, absolutely open about it. Um, and the reason I say that is because a lot of conservative Christians use the King James Bible today. Right. Right. Um, and so King James was the first person to commission a retranslation of the Bible that was more in favor of what the state wanted it to say rather than like scribes and scholars trying to be as authentic as they could. So that was the first time that happened. We all know it's the King James Bible. It still exists today. Um, what year was that? Huh? What call? That would have been in the 16th century. Yeah. No, 17th century. 17th century. Um, one of the first things that happens in the King James Bible, and, and this was really to kind of create more of a theological basis for James's reign in England, was that he started using the word dominion as an English word throughout the Bible. So you think of the Genesis story. God creates all of life, right? And then God creates human beings and then says, go out and multiply and have dominion over everything. So that theology starts with the King James Bible. And it's this idea that God, that we have this vertical relationship. So God is at top, right? God is the supreme being, the creator of everything, all-powerful. Then, right below God, are not just human beings, but human beings who believe in the Christian God. And because we believe in the Christian God, we now have the second level of authority over everything below us. In fact, the 
only thing that has authority over us is God. Everything else is under us. We have authority over it. This is where you see the advent of colonialism. This is where you see the advent of Christians going out and, and violently converting people. It all comes from the same justification. However, that justification also ends up bleeding into our planet. As you get into a time where we have the ability to start affecting the planet, we also now have the theological justification for it. God told us we can do whatever we want. We have dominion. We're the bosses. So that starts 17th century, but it bleeds right into that place where, where researchers start um, shining a light on biodiversity and environmental destruction. You immediately have Christian voices coming in and saying, no, 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 we have dominion. We can do whatever we want. When we look at that word in context, however, you could use the word dominion, but it would have to be understood in the same way that God chooses to have dominion over life, right? And the way God chooses to have dominion over life, if we look at the prophets and the New Testament and Jesus, that dominion starts by seeing the most fragile and weak among us and empowering them. It's through equity, egalitarianism, it's all the same thing. So yeah, you could say God has dominion, but what we see in the Bible is that God chooses to have that dominion in a sustainable, loving, equitable, egalitarian way. And human beings are meant to emulate that dominion with life around us. And that's kind of what Jesus was really pissed off about trying to change, was that, hey folks, we're missing, we're missing what our prophets have been warning us about. So, I mean, you could still use the word dominion. But I would choose not to use it, and I'll get to that in a moment. The other thing that happens theologically, and this happens in the 1800s, 19th century, I think about the 1830s, is, is this new understanding of the book of Revelation and end times theology. So you've got human beings saying, we have dominion over the planet, we can do whatever we want, and then people saying, yeah, stupid, you can, but you're going to ruin our ability to live here. And then you have them clap back with this other thing that says, hey, it's all good, God's going to replace the planet anyways. Now, imagine how stupid that sounds, but how effective it was. Christians genuinely started saying, it's okay if we destroy the planet because God's going to give us a new one. And these weren't fringe Christians. These were people who had in places of, of power, policymakers, presidents, cabinet people, secretaries. Um, I'm not gonna go But <laughs> it wasn't just a fringe thing. This was a very impactful theology um, that, that put people in positions of power in our own country that knew what was happening to the planet, but through theological justification said, it's all good. Now again, when you look at the book of Revelation and end times theology in its own context, and we've talked about this in other unorthodoxes, it's not about the end of the world and God replacing it with something else. It's very much about, um, uh, 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 God, blanking on the word, uh, commentaries. It's commentaries against empires that harm oppressed people. That's what all of those books are about. They're not about literal understandings of like, the world's going to end and God's just going to replace everything. But that theology had a very impactful effect on how we view the planet and ecology and biodiversity. So those are the, the overarching theologies um, that, that, honest to God, are still playing a very big role today.
And, and one of the things we need to do, going back to our faith obligates us, our faith obligates us also to deconstruct these theologies and understand them in their own context. Now, one of the things we can do as you kind of start to explore this is to think of language in a couple different ways. So one, I would say, instead of using the word dominion, or if you hear anyone else ever use that word, is to say, no, that's a bad translation, what it really meant was stewardship. Now, human beings have the intellectual ability to till the earth and understand what's going on and create technology, and now we have such a vast population that we can affect the planet in a magnanimous way, and so is our faith obligated us to do. It's not to have dominion over the planet, but to live in stewardship of it. Because no other life on this planet has the ability to understand the effect it's having on the planet. All other life is just doing what its biology has ingrained it to do. Human beings are unique in that, where we can take a step back and say, oh, this is what we're doing, and our faith compels us to do something different so that we live in a more sustainable way and we can go back to that energy cycle in a sustainable way. Another one, we, and this is, more, this is more of kind of a, a, a call to the secular world. We talk about environment all the time, and that's okay for a lot of people using the languages of science and secular language and stuff to talk about the environment. What I would say for any of us who are our faith to instead use the word creation, because that immediately invokes a relationship. If we talk about the environment as creation, then that means it was created, and we live in relationship with that. Um, I've, I've heard it said that one of the greatest gifts God ever gave humanity was the ability to create and reflect on its ability to create. We can do something that God did and have awareness of it, which is special. Actually, it's, it's 
Too many of us. There's too many of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Our solutions are saving people. Yeah, we want to save people, but then there's more people. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's too many of us. And again, that's not my choice. That's no. in America. It's because our population is going to be unsustainable. So, um, but in other parts of the world, that's just not a choice. But it's something you can choose as a as a species. <coughs> you know, communally together. Becky? When you're giving the cycles, you know, it comes from the sun, then everything cycles, 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 but the sun, the sun only gives, doesn't take, you know, everything else, the water cycle, round and round and round, the sun gives, yeah, where's the cycle in that? I think um, that it, my, what we've been doing in as a fifth grade standard is to realize that there is energy flow goes uh -huh. through a system, but it's actually matter that's getting cycled through, that the energy doesn't from the sun doesn't go back, but it's all burnt off. Yeah. When we use it, it gets burned off, but the material of us gets recycled back into the earth. But not back to the sun. But not back to the sun. What, what, what the sun gives, the sun gives, right? Mm -hmm. okay. To the point that at some point the sun is going to stop. Yeah, the sun's going to give up. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, right. Billions of years from now, none of us have to really But yeah. Yeah. Um, Ken, uh, Ken Herman wasn't here today. We talked about this last week, but he was talking about you know, how can we see um, life on Mars? You know, detections of life on Mars. And it was because the sun was giving at a different rate a long time ago, and there was, it was able to sustain life on Mars. And he says, you know, the sun at some point is going to change the rate of energy that it's giving, and it will stop sustaining life on Earth, but it will start sustaining life on Venus. Mm -hmm. Which is the garden. 